Welcome to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast, the only show that dares to be both on topic and, when it's not a pandemic, on location. Each time we meet, we bring together a group of IT luminaries to discuss a single concept or premise. In this episode, we're looking back again at the topic of Docker. And the question is, does Docker really only care about developers now? Before we begin, uh, let's quickly meet who's on the panel today. I'm Calvin Hendricks Parker, six feet up. I'm Donnie Brickholtz. I'm a VP of products at Docker, and I've spent a long time around the developer community on the end user side, the advisor side, really every side there is. And I'm Larry Smith, uh, CTO at uh, Aspect Core Services. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at Mr. L.A. Smith JR um, and many other places and blog on everything should be virtual.com, even though it's a little bit low. But anyway, uh, that's who I am. And I'm Stephen Foskett, uh, organizer of uh, Gestalt IT and Tech Field Day and uh, instigator of, uh, of this here podcast. And uh, speaking of instigators, um, uh, like a couple months ago, uh, I had uh, Larry, Calvin, and a few other folks from Cloud Field Day join me on the podcast. And uh, we were really wondering about Docker, like what's the direction of Docker? How is Docker going? And uh, to their credit, uh, the Docker folks were listening and said, you know, hey, you know what we should do? Um, we should uh, continue that conversation. We should talk about it. And, um, you know, in talking to them, it really occurred to me, it seems to me like Docker, you know, Docker really only cares about developers now. Uh, Donnie, I'm going to put that to you to start off with. Is that a true statement? Does Docker really only care about developers? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And I think it's one that'll really drive the rest of today's conversation. Um, one of the things that made Docker so compelling for me as I joined the company just back in October here was the opportunity to do something really new and incredible with a company like Docker that's built um, such an amazing community as cloud native really started to spin up in the kind of early 2010s. Um, you know, it's really a community, I think in excess of maybe 10 million people out there using Docker on a regular basis. Um, but one that over the years, uh, you know, there's been a lot of different vendors involved in that ecosystem over time. Docker has tried a lot of different things as a company. And finally, about a year ago, we came to a decision point uh, where we realized, look, the company really is two companies combined. Um, one of those is uh, production orchestration tools, selling to ops, doing kind of that top-down model um, they might be accustomed to for a lot of different operation software products. Well, the other one is an entirely separate company with a separate part of the Docker product suite, which is developer-focused, bottom-up, how do you solve for the developer experience around building modern applications and sharing them and running them, um, rather than the operations problem that, uh, you know, since Docker started, there's been a lot of other uh, technology developed over the past few years in terms of things like Kubernetes and service meshes. Um, and we've been adapting to that over time and are making sure that, you know, we don't keep on going with the same old premise uh, the same old strategy that we started with, but adapt to the times and continue pushing that forward. Um, and so where that's brought us today is, is Docker really as a company is focused solely on developer teams and helping them build, share, and run their applications. Um, but Docker as a community is much broader. And I'd love to have a conversation about where that community has gone, how it intersects with cloud native. So, so Donnie, um, I, hear, I hear what you're saying. How does that affect, and, and I hear what you're saying as far as two different companies being one focused on operational type things, the other being more developer focused. And if I were listening to your passion, I hear you get more passionate about the developer side versus the operational side. How do those two worlds match? How do they marry together? 
And how are we going to go forward, you know, being that, you know, years and years ago, it used to be these, you know, the operational things were like Dr. Swarm bringing in different things for, for, for service meshes and things like that. What I, what I think I'm hearing is the traditional developers mindset of, we don't really care. We just want our application to run, let them figure out all the minutia of things. So. Yeah, and I think that's that's a big part of it. And I don't want to say we don't care because um, we do care, right? I've, I've spent a long time in the DevOps community over the past decade plus here. And I really have a deep understanding of a lot of those problems. Um, some of those problems overlap and a lot of those problems don't that are you know unique to developers or unique to DevOps engineers, or if you don't like the idea of DevOps engineers, systems engineers, production support, um, all those kinds of terms that indicate you own production um, rather than you own developing the application itself. Um, in some cases, those overlap especially as we see more and more kind of modern companies like a Netflix where you have full stack support, right? It's not an, it's not ops problem and, and devs problem. It's they're all our problems to solve. Um, and so some of those are going to span, but I think, um, you know, when you look at what Docker does really, really well, and I think uh, Compose is a great example of one of the differences that I see between Docker for developers and between what things look like to run containers in a production context, uh, which is Compose is, super simple to define a multi-container kind of microservice application for developers, right? You just kind of glue them together, compose up, and there you go. And you can even do that in public clouds like AWS and Azure. But once you get into production, there's a whole new set of problems you have to solve, right? You've got to solve problems of scale. You have to solve problems around logging, around monitoring, um, around different kinds of storage needs. There's different kinds of performance expectations. Um, and for those problems, um, you know, things like Kubernetes that are built to handle that level of complexity are a great fit. Um, the frustrating part of that for developers is Kubernetes is super complicated, right? It's super complicated even for domain experts in the space who have been doing infrastructure for years and years to say, man, I got to learn all this stuff. Uh, what's all these different parts of this thing? Like, I, do I have to be a full-time Kubernetes expert? Do I need a team of Kubernetes people um, just to run this? Um, and for a developer, I want to focus on my application. I don't want to focus on my platform. So where do we find that intersection of space where we can make things really easy for developers while still enabling um, a clean intersection, a clean collaboration with platform teams and infrastructure teams around them? No, that's, that's, I come from this from a, a developer standpoint specifically. Uh, we do deploy, we do all those kinds of things. And so Compose was probably the tool that brought me into the Docker fold finally. I, I had been a long time holdout uh, it's like containers, bah, you know, Docker, bah, whatever. And I think a lot of the reason I probably didn't adopt sooner was a lot of the like churn in branding and naming and the kind of like, I felt like we were drawn continually into the Docker's corporate issues of how we're going to call a thing and then recall a thing and then call it another thing and then spin out the enterprise thing. So I'm sorry, I, I did go on a rant there and I, I told people I would not try and go on a rant, but that, that's my like, initial rant, which is I'm finally here. I'm, I finally came in as a developer and I see uh, Docker and Docker Compose as a great way to quickly onboard developers. I mean, as case in point, I'm able to take a fresh out of the box laptop and have a developer start committing code in under an hour. I mean, usually even less time than that, like half an hour, they can actually be pulling code and be productive because they're not worrying about setting all the junk up, like you just said. So I, I think the issue is it's the the Docker dirty laundry of like branding changes and things hasn't stopped. It's continuing and there's even more names and things going on out there. And I do totally subscribe to like we'd use, you know, for example, Fargate for 
deploying. And I think that's great. We're not using Docker at all in that case for where we put our containers. But I think for folks that that is confusing. There's there's definitely a a, a clarification that needs to happen there, a simp simplification of the terminology of the words of the how we deal with it. Because I think that the technology now is finally solid. Like I feel good about it and uh, where I've been pretty critical of it in the past. Well, and I think I'm sorry yeah. to jump in, but I think that that is that really begs the point here, which is when when I say Docker, what do I mean? Like, because we've yeah, exactly. all seen this. Like, right. okay, so so Marantis buys Docker. Well, no, that's not actually a thing. Like, that's not what happened. Um, you know, Docker. You know, Kubernetes dun dumps Docker. Wait a second. That's not exactly the. So, what is Docker even? Larry's laughing. Larry, what what is, yeah, what is no, Docker? No, you 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 went exactly where I was going to go, and I know this is the million dollar question, and it's nothing new. I mean, everybody was like blindsided by this. You know, the the runtimes getting, you know, that KubeCon, Docker's going away. Well, to Stephen's point, what does we understand it, right? But I don't think the broad spectrum of folks that are exposed to the the technology and the things that know where this is that line of delineation and what does that really mean and where i also wanted to add well part of that was that piece what is docker's stance because again donnie mentioned we're we're you know developer there's two different things of docker now there's the the developer focus which again i go back to that seems like the more passionate side of it and it makes a lot of sense but what does that mean over here in the infrastructure side when you get into the services? Because now that is applicable to, hey, Docker or Kubernetes is not supporting Docker as a runtime anymore. But do we do something else? Do we, you know, do we use the open source things of Docker, the engine and things like that? Where, where does that go, I guess? Yeah, and those are some great areas to dig into. Um, you know, I think Docker over the years has tried a lot of different things. I mean, it's been around for long enough to not be a brand new startup anymore. Uh, and some of those things have really stuck, right? Especially around the core technology. And some of those things um, have lived on for, you know, either years or still live on today. And there's questions out there in the broader ecosystem of like, what does that mean? Um, and so, you know, two we could talk about briefly would be around uh, Mirantis and what happened there. Um, and then around uh, the whole Kubernetes Docker shim concept and what happened there. Um, both of which I think there's a lot of confusion um, out there amongst Docker users that I talk to regularly of what, what does that mean for me? Like what's happening out here? Um, you know, so if we take like the Mirantis one as an example, all right, this is one we kind of mentioned earlier, so we don't need to spend a ton of time on it, I think. Uh, but, you know, they bought off the Docker enterprise business, right? So they've got that enterprise orchestration tool side of it, Docker, the company no longer sells support for Swarm, no longer sells, uh, you know, trusted registry as a product, no longer sells Docker engine support, um, those kinds of things that you really care about in a production context, right? You want to know when my crap breaks at 2 a.m., who do I call as an external expert to come in and break this stuff, right? Because I used to run an incident management team. I know how this works, right? You don't want the buck to stop with you. You want there to be somebody who is the expert. You bring them in. They help you fix the stuff. Uh, and so Mirantis has taken all of that on, doing a great job. They've actually begun um, moving some of those into the context of different brands, which is going to help, I think, a lot in avoiding confusion of calling things more like, Mirantis Container Cloud and that sort of idea instead of, oh, this is still Docker something. What is Docker even? Um, the other one, 
is around the Kubernetes uh, kerfluffle, as I'll call it, just to mix a couple of Ks together. Hopefully we, uh, yeah, stick with two. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, if we look at what happened there, I think there was just a ton of confusion in the community um, when this news came out in like a release note that you're like, oh wait, does Docker, is Docker going away? Like, is the company shutting down or something? What's happening here? It's super confusing. Um, you know, it was gonna come out and it was deprecated and, and everybody's sitting there thinking like, what's what's that mean? Like, is Docker going away? Is Docker gonna stop working? Um, and, and the thing that I found incredible about this is I think, you know, people had lost sight of something because it was an initiative that's been going on for multiple years, which is container D was started by Docker in the first place with the explicit intent of no longer requiring a shim to shove this stuff into Kubernetes. But instead of saying, we have a vendor neutral interface that we can slot container D in as one of the core components that runs within Docker, which provides those developer experience tools, but also that can run in a production context. We don't need all that fancy developer experience stuff. You just need the simplest piece possible that's gonna run and provide a smaller surface area. I mean, so those are two things you know, that stood out to me in terms of what, when I'm hearing confusion from developers out there who are using Docker, from ops out there who have been using Docker is um, really, you gotta pay a lot of attention to be able to follow all of it because there's so much going on within Cloud Native as a whole, let alone within Docker. Should uh, Docker then go maybe revive an old brand like .cloud and uh, bring that back? Uh, I guess I'll respond to that one unless Larry wants to jump in and, and have his take on it. Uh, it's, it's a good one. I think there's always a lot of conversations going on of what is the best way to help create clarity for developers out there and for users as a whole. Um, and does it create clarity to create new names for things and launch a new name or to reduce the number of names for things um, or to um, go back to the old ones that have a different um, kind of promise associated with them? Um, tons of them. And, and we have conversations like that every day um, between you know my team, our design team, our community, uh, our marketing team to say, what's, what's the best way to help paint that picture really clearly of what does Docker of today want to be? Right? How do you paint that picture of Docker is for developers um, rather than that picture of Docker is for production support at three in the morning um, or that picture of, uh, you know, if you went back to the Doc Cloud days, like Docker is a component of a PaaS that we decided to open source because other people wanted to build a PaaS of their own, right? A lot of different promises in there and every single one of those brand names brings a, a different set of assumptions and communications along with it. Yeah, and where I was going to go is I remember so back 2016, 2017, I was in a large enterprise and had um, Docker. We used Docker Enterprise as one of the things that we used, and we used to go meet with Docker out in San Francisco. And but our support contract was through Canonical, right? And at that point, you know, we used Swarm, so Swarm was you know, we had it running tens of thousand containers, blah blah blah, whatever. Well, what we found with that was that the canonical support was relatively useless. It was very expensive. It didn't provide any value um, because when we had an issue, it was, you know, you were a snowflake, you were a whatever. And it was like, oh, your canonical was like, you know, pretty much just piss off. You know what I mean? Now I know Marantis, you know, they've got a hopefully a little bit different approach to it. So I guess my question more in line with that is what is, and we don't have to go into it now, maybe that's another conversation, but what does that look like for Marantis supporting Docker Enterprise? Is it, I assume it's not gonna be a similar user experience, but just kind of throwing that out there. 
Yeah, it's, I mean, that's a good one. And I, I can't speak for them. Um, and so, you know, you have to bring them into a future conversation about what they don't want to do with that. What I can speak to is, you know, I think the different context in which developers think about support compared to how ops teams tend to think about yeah. support. Um, and so when we hear from developers, like, what do they want? Um, I have yet to meet a developer, whether they're at a startup, an agency, an enterprise, who wants to phone in for support on their dev tools. Yeah. Right? They don't, they just don't want to do that. And they just pull open source libraries into their stack, build applications with them, intermix that with different proprietary components, maybe some middleware stuff that they've got inside their company, um, build that all together in, into some kind of service oriented architecture. Maybe it's a big monolith or maybe it's signing microservices and, and ship the thing. Right. And they feel a lot more ownership for the full stack um, because, you know, they're the ones who did built the integrations. They're the ones who write the code. Um, and, yeah. you know, I think that's made a world of difference, right? When developers are looking for support, they want it in the context of, hey, I can file a bug report and get it fixed quickly, right? Yeah. Or I have certain quality expectations up front. And that's what good supported products feel like is a company stands behind what they build rather than um, kind of on-call support. Um, so there, there's yeah. a big difference there that I have seen in terms of developers want stuff that works, want easy turnaround time, tangible stuff. Like if, uh, one example that we were talking about just the other day is, you know, Docker, Docker Hub has official images and they're by far the most popular source of getting container content um, anywhere. And what does that kind of support for an official image look like between a developer and an operations team, right? Operations team says, give me the on-call support. I want my 24 seven, I want my one hour SLA. So you hop on your instant bridge. Um, developer says, you know, um, I want you to expose the issues in that image to me so that I can make my own decision about, is that a quality bar I'm willing to accept or not? I just want the transparency and the ability to do things like search and filter um, and find the good stuff and build upon that good stuff and have trust and confidence in it up front. Yep. And I think I would add real quick um, on top of that is, I think what we're hitting on here, and Calvin, you, you can speak to this too. I think what we're hitting on here is we keep harping on this thing where where operational operations and developers and all these different silos, we keep saying they need to work together. It's not reality. They're still silos. But what I'm hearing here is this is actually, let, let's just take it from this perspective. This seems like it's putting more silos in place because it's more finger pointing because of the different methodologies versus mm -hmm. let's bring them together more and have that ownership because you know, in the context of like I was saying from a canonical support is, you know, we were in a big enterprise. We were more comfortable supporting and fixing the issues ourselves from an operational perspective because we were enabled in working with the developers alongside us. So we had that continuous flow from end to end. So we knew if something broke here, what did it look like downstream? Does that make sense? I don't know if that's so I just wanted to kind of tie that together. And, and, and I know what I'm, I'm hearing is that's like utopia, right? That's yeah. still utopia today. Well, so. I'm, I'm not hearing those silos necessarily. I, I think we still do have that con continuity between the developers through to the delivery. Now, what I'm worried about is that, I, I, well, I'm not worried. Okay, I've got kind of two sides of this. I'm, I'm actually really excited that the Docker is just like focusing you know, we're, we're narrowing the scope of what we're going to do because I think that's always better for the in the end user of whatever product it is to, for them to focus in and not try and be everything to everybody. But at that point, how do you 
how do we like make sure the Docker doesn't die off altogether? They got to make money somehow. I love the Docker tools now because it does simplify the interface I have to working with containers and images on my local machine, but I'm not paying any money to Docker to do that part that I love. Um, so I don't. I, I, I hope there's some way where, that we see a support mechanism that is sustainable. Because I think actually what you had just mentioned was like, you know, who's going to buy into support for their local machine for like a developer they're, they're going to just hack their way through it they're going to like go look in the forums they're going to go dig in the source code they may submit a, a pull request i think this is uh again getting a little bit back to the how does open source make make money uh conversation uh, and that is important because i don't want this to go away this has been a really great tool and I, it has changed over for us the last 18 months how we deliver software yeah that's that's a really interesting one and all uh you know, I think respond to that first, because I think the whole idea of open source business models has been um, a contentious one in itself, I think of like, is there even such a thing as an open source business model or are there just business models? Um, yeah, even and and some podcast, of them are built on should, open source. I should yeah. jump in and say that was, that was the topic of one of our premises and it was uh, quite controversial indeed. Yeah, that's, yeah, it, it's a good one. We could, we could talk about that for hours. Um, but you know, I think the question of how you provide value to developers is, is a very different one, um, and one that's evolved over time too. You know, what we see across the industry, if you look at what developers pay for the most today, it tends to be something that is a hosted service, a hosted managed service. They pay for that. They see that value very clearly because they're like, ah, oh, that would be a lot of trouble to do for myself. I don't really want to spend my time and effort on it. Like, save me time. Give me stuff I can build upon let me focus on building the stuff I want to and not all the crap in, in between me and there. Um, and so I think that continues to be the direction we're headed, not just with a registry, because I think Hub, Hub Today is already much more than a registry. It's a registry plus its collaboration tools, plus its official images, verified images from partner publishers and so on and so forth. Um, and so, uh, you know, providing more of that service and really tying together, I think something that uh, Docker's product today really is I want to say unique, but pretty darn close to it, um, is that we have both cloud and local. A lot of different vendors out there have a cloud experience, they have a cloud product, or they have something local that you install and do your thing. Um, I think Docker's in a really interesting position because we have both, right? Like Docker Desktop is installed and used by millions of developers. Same thing with Hub. There's so much opportunity to make those better together um, to provide that like value of a managed service in a way that developers see that really resonates with them. I mean, I, you know, we could, we could riff on that, but I think there's other areas that might be fun to spend some time. Um, you know, the, I think the other topic that Larry mentioned was around the whole silo concept. And this is always a really good one for me. Um, you know, I was, I was responsible at uh, CWT, a global enterprise for leading our DevOps transformation for the past few years before I joined Docker. And that silo question was a really important one to me there of how do we find, how do we break down the silos and collaborate more effectively? Um, and a big part of that turns out, um, in my experience, be how do we enable teams to build upon other teams and not require as many handoffs, but instead have self-service platforms and capabilities that the next team over can build upon, right? And you say, here's my service, here's my documentation, I will have ownership for this level of the stack, and now you take ownership for your part of the stack. So that we, instead of having ownership for dev environments over here and prod environments over here, we say, look, here's the platform team, they support the container service. Um, here's the development team building an application on top of that. They support that service, right? Soup to nuts, whether it's dev, staging, production, they own it. 
um, and they really feel that responsibility. And those intersection points then become um, contracts and APIs and um, interface layers like, um, I think, you know, seven, eight years ago, you, said, you could have said like a container is the interface layer and the developer cares about the container and what's in it. And the platform team cares about the container and what's outside of it. And they should not have to care about what's inside of it at all. Um, and is that a silo? I would say not. I would say it provides an opportunity for teams to be more autonomous and independent. You know, the, the experience from where I was going with that was um, you actually hit the exact same thing, right? You can, you know, we use the way to stitch those teams together to be able to enable that holistic view uh, with pipelines and things like that because they were handoffs via API calls or whatever it may be. That way, you know, when we run a pipeline to build the infrastructure and stand up that, that stack, which was a container platform, um, and multiple data centers, et cetera, as part of that, it would actually trigger the other pipelines that would deploy applications, implement testing, implement the security mechanisms and all those things, hands off, you know, beginning to end and then yeah. have it on a continuous rotation. So yeah, go ahead, I agree. I know I agree with that completely because it's not like we're talking about silos and kind of throw it over the wall anymore. It really gets back to uh, an accountability. Like there's, there's, there's clear boxes they're not silos, they're not buckets, they're not walls. Like we're all, we're all kind of on the level playing field and we know exactly what each person is accountable for. And so yep. it's enabled to be able to deploy with containers has made it a lot easier to diagnose and debug like in the stack. I know it made it maybe more tricky to trace a, a request going through the stack, but it's made it easier to see like, well, when that hits this specific spot in the stack, I know who to call because I know who's yep. responsible for that box in the architecture diagram, or I know it's gotten into the application and, and now I'm calling the developers or I'm calling the infrastructure people. It's it's so much easier to determine when something goes wrong, where, you know, who's who's accountable for those pieces. Like, that's important. Yep, and that, and that hits out in exactly what it, where I was going with that as far as accountability and visibility more so than accountability, even though they're kind of, I mean, you need bo both, right? is that within a pipeline, you have that visibility and you know everybody has that visibility into what broke, where, 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 I, where was I at in that flow that caused X? How do I solve that problem and make sure it doesn't return itself? Um, and, but having that holistic view of the whole platform as, as a machine versus a thing or individual things, where do I, you know, how do I get in and dive in and be able to fix those things? And yeah. anyway, well, we I could go another, on forever on this. I, yeah. I, I also think that another thing we've gained from this move to, to containers and images and deployment like this is the contracts are much more, when done right, when Docker is done correctly, because I've seen Docker done incorrectly where everyone builds the whole stack in one container. What's the point? Why did you go through this yeah. exercise? But if you, now it's helping reinforce to developers to, explain, I want to expose exactly these ports. I will always log to standard out because then someone else can make a decision on how they deal with the logging and analytics and collection of metrics. I don't deal with that anymore. As long as I fulfill my part of the bargain, which is follow these easy to follow practices. They're well-documented on, on the docs, which is really nice. The docs are actually pretty good. And so I think that's helped move developers into more best practices. We're seeing a lot less spaghetti code. We're seeing a lot more uh, kind of Unix mindset type applications where uh, one container does one thing and does that one thing really well. And you've got basically that concept of standard in and standard out uh, for the input to the application, and the output to the application. 
I love that. I, I love that fact that, you know, Docker has brought the world to a, a much better point when it comes to how you develop an, a real application. And now we can give it off to people who know how to scale it. And they can just, they can do it without having to dig into the application and understand the application because everyone did their part and everyone understood what their part, their role was supposed to be in this. And that actually, and Donnie, I think you probably had something to follow up on in this, but that, that could lead into a whole nother conversation about observability, right? We get into observability and, and security and things like that. That's a whole other rabbit hole. And, you know, being able to, Calvin, actually, obviously you said what, what triggered that thought in my head is one of those things is, you know, we've been talking a lot lately um, about security, right? Security and containers. I mean, I, I haven't done it in the last year or so, but I did it years ago with Docker, like being able to lock down certain elements of hosts and things like that and kind of following a best practice of how you enable security from a containerization perspective. And it's, 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 it's not easy. That's not for the faint of heart. But being able to think about security from the beginning to end and continuous to make sure you don't break the flow as things churn um, is a whole nother conversation in its own, along with the observability piece. So anyway. Yeah, and that's, uh, I'll just say in passing that uh, the release we put out in December just stabilized uh, rootless support in Engine. And so you can take away some of those administrative rights that you'd prefer not every application has. Um, and yeah. then you break out and you're suddenly root. Uh, not a great yep. security uh, posture to have there. But I, I think, you know, the observability question is one that I spent a ton of time in more on the DevOps side. But the question comes back to developers and where they care about observability is a really interesting one for me um, of, you know, how much ownership do you have for production really is the question, right? Uh, and if you feel more ownership for it, you want to have better insights into it and insights that are more real time. Um, and, and so, you know, like the, the capability to do continuous deployment or to do rolling deploys, like if you can't get rapid feedback on how that's going, then you're just throwing shots in the dark. Like you have no idea. Is it going to be healthy? Is it bad? Like, should I stop? Should I roll it back? I, I don't know. Right. Because I have no, I have no insight. Um, and so, you know, from a developer perspective, like that part of it is valuable. And, you know, we can argue about like, is that observability or is that just monitoring? Um, but certainly that piece of it is is a big one. Just give me insights I need when I need to know them, which is either when I'm deploying an application or when, you know, I think things bubble up to my level of the stack and, you, and we, have to, we have to agree that whose problem it is and who owns the problem. If we're looking at different sets of monitoring tools, different sets of interfaces, then you end up having disagreements about, you know, you got the network team saying, well, not us, somebody else, we're not sure who else, but yeah. our network monitoring tool says we're good here. You just described every yeah. enterprise that we deal with. Yep. Well, you know, and it comes back to the whole decision tree, right? It's a, it's a logic that you implemented within pipelines and things like that, that, that have, but you have to have that visibility. And on top of that, you have to know if it exists when you start and if it exists when you end or if it doesn't exist at all, and if it doesn't exist, then you build it up new. And But if it does exist, what determines the next best path of how you do a thing? You know, like Calvin may run into an issue like, hey, this application is not doing whatever. Let's just say it's not scaling correctly, right? And we work together and we build the logic within that. We should implement that within the pipeline that says, hey, as I'm running a pipeline or have the observability trigger a thing, uh, yeah, we can go down a whole nother rabbit hole with that conversation. So, 
Well, before we uh, wrap up here, one thing that I do want to specifically throw uh, toward Donnie here is that the um, the premise of the previous podcast that caused uh, that that got your notice was about rate limiting, and specifically Docker Hub rate limiting. So I feel that I would be remiss if I did not ask. Now, if Docker only cares about developers now, uh, and Docker does still, you know, the Docker company does still control Docker Hub. Um, how do you answer all of the concern about rate limiting in Docker Hub? Yeah, it's a great question. And it ties into what Calvin brought up earlier, which is how do we make sure that Docker has a sustainable business model um, so that it can be around for the long term, so that we can have trust that we know that those images that everybody uses to build upon will stay there. Um, and, you know, I think it's, it's pushing it really far to suggest that we want to, um, you know, stand on the hill and say we're the stewards of the container community. Um, but we do feel a level of responsibility to make sure that people's stuff keeps working and that we can build ourselves into a company that's set up for long-term sustainability so that you've got, you know, you don't have a hundred percent of your users who are free. Um, you have a large percentage, no, no question about it. Um, but you do have a percentage of those who find enough value in different parts of what you provide to decide it's worth paying for it. Um, and so that's where, um, you know, the, the recent poll rate limiting comes into it, which is, around saying, look, if you're deriving that level of value out of the services that we're providing, that you are pulling in excess of hundreds of times every few hours, um, you know, if you're seeing that level of value, then you should be prepared to exchange in a trade of dollars for value received, right? We're not trying to capture more value than we create. Um, we're trying to capture a value that puts us in a sustainable posture. And that's really, I think, what, what Docker is all about right now is building that position of sustainability as a new company, um, as a new Docker, and as a way that enables us to build toward that long-term success and that long-term future of, okay, now we've got pull rate limiting around that, um, but that's not the only thing there is, right? Because if you sign up as a Docker customer, and I'm, I'm gonna avoid pitching here, but there's a lot of other pieces uh, that you get as part of that subscription. It's not just about unlimited polls. It's also about a lot of other aspects to it. Um, anybody who is, is particularly interested, feel free to go check out the pricing page. But um, building that sustainable company is going to be a combination of taking the things that we used to give everything away for free. Um, you know, we call it the all you can eat buffet. Like there is no charge. You walk in, you just take everything, you walk away. Um, and now to turn that into a sustainable model, we have to back away from some of those for a percentage of the users receiving the highest value while simultaneously making sure that we're creating new value on top that convinces people to feel happier about what they're getting out of it. Because you don't just want to have uh, sticks that you're chasing after people with. You want to say, look, we've got reasons for you to pay for what you're already doing, but we're also creating more and more reasons for you to decide to sign up and do more with Docker in the future. And what I want to add real quick is what I hear with you saying that does in my mind, justify a name change of product. Just, just, just off the top of my head, because that that seems like the logical thing to do to sustain a model going forward. Where, where it was the all-you-can-eat buffet for free was Docker, which you know, again, the clarity of the product and things like that. There are many other vendors that go down this path too, but being able to somehow change the naming of something about that. I don't know. It, you know what I mean? It's just, it seems logical. Yeah. I mean, people associate a, a feeling and a expectation to a name 
And when that name doesn't change, but the expectation does, you know what they say about happiness, right? It's all about meeting and exceeding expectations. Well, when they miss, you, that's where the problems happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and one more thing I think worth tacking onto that, um, you know, so we also, to try and align with those expectations, we did build out an open source program as well. Um, and so all the open source projects that have been accustomed to distributing their software through Docker Hub, we also sponsor that. Um, and so we do want to make sure that we don't um, attack the community, um, but instead we support and enable and sustain that community that's built around it over the years, rather than trying to force, um, you know, it's, I, I spent close to 15 years as an open source software developer. And it's not even about the $5 a month. It's about who pays for it. And does that person disappear next month? Cause it's just a community of people trickling in and out. And there's no way for that community to, to even subscribe to something. Um, and so it's, it's not about the money. It's about the spirit and about making sure that we're solving for some of those complexities and enabling the community instead of blocking it. Well, I think that's actually a great way to uh, kind of summarize this whole discussion uh, that Docker, uh, you know, it, it's not that Docker doesn't care about you. Uh, I sure hope that Docker does still care about people like me who use it for operational reasons, because man, that thing's pure freaking magic when it comes to, uh, you know, deploying applications and so on. Um, but uh you know, like, like, I think what we're hearing is that Docker needs to care primarily about developers. Docker needs to focus on something and it needs to be something that sometimes pays. And uh, I think that's what's going on. So uh, before we wrap, um, I'm going to give you all a chance to kind of sum up a uh, response to this premise. Uh, does Docker only care about developers now? And, uh, you know, Donnie, let's finish with you since you're the Docker guy. Uh, Larry, uh, Calvin, uh, Larry, go, go ahead and go first. Um, I, I would say just based on this conversation, I would say absolutely. I mean, that's the sense that comes to my mind right off the top is that um, it, they do care about the developers only. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm saying we need to adapt, you know, from, from an operational perspective, need to adapt and, and, and figure out where, where, um, where those lines meet and how we get the bridge between the, the you know, providing the functionality uh, to the developers to enable them, you know, and, Obviously, I'm one that falls on both sides of, of the spectrum, so I'm a little bit unique, but I'm trying to play it from the operational side, so. Yeah, I, I will uh, say, my goodness, thank goodness, yes. I hope this premise is true. I want that to be true. I want Docker to grow more creature comforts for developers. I want Docker to continue to take that spot in the ecosystem of encouraging best practices and kind of giving guardrails to junior developers, senior developers, any developer along the way, so that they are always following those best practices and it's easy to follow those best practices. Security can be hard, but if you can find ways to automate, streamline, make it easier to follow the best practices for security, we, we should end up with you know, higher quality apps, less bugs, better security stance. Like there's so many upsides and benefits to this. Uh, I think, and and I think you can deliver those in the current Docker that I run on my local machine. And then I think there is definitely an absolutely a place for you know, premium features that I, as a developer, would want to sign on to that run in, say, that you know, the, up in the cloud that give me additional benefits. You know, security checking of the of the images, uh, you know some kind of audits, you know, AI code reviews, or you know, I think the list of of opportunity to provide value 
for the developer, not for the end user or the end product being deployed in production, but directly to the developer is a, is a big area that I, I'm glad to see you're focusing. Thanks. And I'll bring that back with, uh, yeah, I think Docker, you know, as a company, we truly are focused on developers. Uh, we need to focus as a startup or we'll be spread so thin that we can't do anything well. Um, and we really want to solve one problem or one set of problems for a well-defined customer super well. Um, so we're all in on developers. We're all in on developer teams. Uh, we're going to be doing a ton more this year on and at team level specifically. And think this isn't just about a single person using it. Every single developer out there, um, or at least a lot of them, work on a team. So how do you collaborate more effectively and use Docker as a platform to do so? Um, you know, I think though one thing that is interesting to make sure we continue to consider, as I say, Docker is only developed for developers, is that developers don't only develop on their local machine, right? Developers have to be in other places and other environments. They have to be in CI. They have to work in production. Um, and we have to enable them to do so effectively, no matter what environment they're working in. Um, and, and so you've seen some of that over the past year. We're going to continue doing more of that um, to make sure that Docker focuses on developers, but not only on development. Um, and that's an important distinction. Well, thank you very much. And uh, Donnie, uh, thank you as well for joining us here. Um, you know, the, the, it's wonderful that we, uh, you know, we had a podcast, we talked about Docker and the response was, you know, hey, we want to, we want to jump in there too. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, those of you listening, I know that we would love to continue this conversation. I do recommend maybe uh, heading over to Twitter. You can find uh, Donnie at, at uh, D Burkholz. Uh, we'll include that in the show notes. You can find uh, Mr. L. E. Smith Jr. And you can find Calvin HP and me at S. Foskett on Twitter. And we would love to continue this conversation as well. Uh, thanks for listening to the On-Premise IT Roundtable podcast. If you enjoyed this discussion, um, one more thing you can do to help us out is to subscribe, rate, and review. You know, everybody says that at the end of podcasts, but it actually really does help. And uh, we would really appreciate anything that you can do there to help uh, spread the news about the show, including uh, sharing the show with your friends. Uh, this podcast is brought to you, as always, by gestaltit.com, your home for IT coverage across the enterprise, uh, parentheses, ops. Uh, for show notes and more episodes, go to uh, gestaltit.com slash podcast. And we will see you next time. <laughs>